This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 23rd, 2023. I'm Strat Lundabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the right-wing parties in BC have climate policies. Well, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> they have. They are talking about climate. And they both think <laughs> they it's... They have a thing that has policy stamped on the top of it. And they both think climate change is real. They're telling us that. And federally, Christian Freeland has a fiscal update that, again, says fiscal update on the title. It's, I guess it gives us some update about our fiscal situation. Well, that's... in Freeland's defense, like it's a hundred and forty something page document. There's some stuff there. Like I, I think at one point budgets were shorter than that. <laughs> Got to talk about what you've done. Speaking of talking about what we do, Patreon.com/slash/Politicoast. Let's start off with uh, caucus news. The member for Burnaby. East, I believe, Katrina Chen has announced that she is going to be retiring after this session is done. Chen has had a comp, like not a bad, like a great career in the legislature. She was Minister of Childcare essentially and brought Childcare BC and the government's approach on that in. But in the last year or so, she has not actually been in cabinet by personal choice. And she cites that that was. To help her deal with past domestic violence situations, which I can't imagine has been easy to deal with, you know, in the background as you're in cabinet and all that. So, you know, it's very reasonable, expected uh, resignation and retirement. Um, it's a very safe seat for the BCNDP. So we'll see if there's a big race happening there. I did notice today when I opened Twitter for just checking if I'd missed anything. Rhea Aurora has already announced that uh, they're going to be running for for the seat in Burnaby East. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to see more candidates, but having someone jump up already. Um, Rhea's involved in the BC Federation of Labor and other, you know, labor movements. So probably a strong contender to take it, but could be a challenging race there. Uh, otherwise, it may already be done. <laughs> Definitely, the uh, the general is pretty much locked in at this point. Yeah the the NDP would have to do really bad to lose Burnaby. Like it, yeah, it's, it's not, not their qu- worst. It's not their strongest seat, but yeah, it, it's not as strong a lock as the Mount Pleasant by election was, but it's not that far off either. The other thing to come up this week in the legislature before we turn to some of the more policy issues that have come up. Only one new bill. It was the bill to bring forward the app, the gig worker rules that we talked about last week. So there's nothing really interesting there. Otherwise, they've been debating most of the government's housing bills in committee. There were some interesting exchanges between Adam Olson, uh, getting a bit more into the substantive angles of, you know, does the multiplex zoning really just further exacerbate the challenge we have that Statistics Canada pointed out that people whose parents own homes are far more likely to own homes these days. And are we just like further entrenching intergenerational wealth 
issues with this? And does the government have any analysis to prove it won't do that? Uh, the government's response was, we have some analysis, we'll release it after the regulations, which was not reassuring. Yeah, at the same time, though, like if you don't do this, you are definitely locking that in because the uh, continue to use only single family zoning in most of the cities is just not a sustainable path. And if anything, that locks people in because you don't then have uh, more affordable options on the market for people to get on the property ladder for. Yeah, like we absolutely need to be doing a lot of things. So. I think it was an interesting exchange, but I'm ultimately still supportive of the bill and seeing it as part of a broader effort to tackle the housing crisis, even if like on its own, it might not be the perfect. We need we need lots of things happening here. Uh, speaking of lots of things happening, the other interesting debate in the legislature actually kind of came outside the legislature. We talked about Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act number four uh, when it was introduced a couple of weeks ago. This one... Uh, I forget what the like three uncontroversial things it did were, but the apparently very controversial thing from every angle was to set a definition for reasonably alternative sheltering provisions for municipalities looking to evict people from tent encampments. Uh, this was attacked from, I'll say broadly, but uh, the laughter, the you know, homeless advocate side with an open letter from the BC Civil Liberties Association pointing out a number of challenges uh, with, you know, just because sheltering is available doesn't mean it's proper. Uh, and then it was attacked from the other side by UBCM saying, now we can't evict people. What are we going to do? Because, you know, we'll have to rely on BC housing to guarantee it. we don't have enough spaces. So everyone was mad, which is incredible. A more sympathetic ear with this bill than without it from the courts, probably. The challenge now is the government having seen this criticism especially the ubcm criticism has committed that uh, they are going to delay implementation of it so they need to introduce a because committee is finished this afternoon they're going to introduce an amendment at third reading uh, to take that one section and say it will be enacted whenever the minister feels like it and then they're going to talk to ubcm and try and make them feel better and still bring it in, but kind of a mess. I guess they could just defeat it at third reading or not bring it forward for third reading, but committee's Can't done. see them doing that. I mean, yeah. they only have one more week of uh, sitting before the uh, end of the year, and then it'll be thrown speech in a new session. So, you know, you could write the puck on this one and just uh, let it die on the order paper if you really wanted to. It'll be interesting to see how the discussions happen there and if there is any amendments, I guess, to what will become the new law that's pending enactment. Uh, I had a little discussion with one of our patrons in Slack, and we could think of a couple cases where this had happened. Uh, I think Alberta notably did it with one of those laws. It was either the Kenny end of the Kenny era or during the Alberta NDP when BC and Alberta were fighting over pipelines and wine. And it was like the turn off the tap law that I think was passed, but not enacted. enacted. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I can't not think of what bill it is, but I've definitely seen it on one or two things before where there's like enactment by order and council. So let's jump from the absurdly pedantic, like legislative nerd stuff into climate policy. Uh, both the, 
BC United and BC Conservatives announced climate policies kind of this past week. The BC United uh, found or was given a analysis by the BC Council of British Columbia that digs into some modeling buried in the Clean BC Roadmap to 2030 document that the Business Council claims will result in $28 billion in lost income to the province over uh, the period and 200,000 jobs. The government had only talked up the positive numbers, like we are going to create 50,000 jobs or whatever number they'd come up with in there. But this, I think, compares a, like, we don't do anything to we do climate policies you're proposing model. And the difference there is a missing, I guess, $28 billion in revenue for the government. Um, And because of that, BC United has said they are going to scrap Cost BC. They're renaming Clean BC Cost BC. I hate it. Really trying to make fetch happen there. So bad. They've not figured out how to do the uh, the quips and that's something to stick well. There, there's an art to it, and it's not so that I'd say I'm particularly so bad. Like I can see this that that's not going to work there for sure. Um, I mean, the actual cost numbers, which uh, bored out, are definitely concerning because it they do come out with not just, oh, it's going to be like lower than the trajectory going forward, but actually lower in real terms than current GDP, which, yeah, that's that's not foregone growth. That's negative growth, if uh, the modeling's in any way accurate. And yeah, that's not good. Yeah, like, Notably, BC has had a very strong economy over the last few years. It's led the country in a number of metrics, or at least been at the top end, and that's the government's defense. This modeling suggests a lot of the pain comes much later in the latter half of the uh, scenario projected when the carbon tax in particular goes above $170 a ton or gets into that realm. Um at the same time, I also just have to like point out there, like the cost of not doing stuff exists too, both as we see other jurisdictions move on climate change and as the world gets hotter. Like, I know we're a small drop in the bucket, but we do need every drop in this bucket to be acting, and everyone can't use that excuse like these two parties are. But Kevin Falcon does have a plan. He does say that the BC United will replace Clean BC with common sense measures that focus on real climate results while providing more jobs, higher incomes, and lower taxes. What are those, Scott? <laughs> well, those are all like your standard right of center uh, mad lib talking points almost. Um, at least keyword. Uh, in terms of what's actually in there, there's the scrap the uh current plan uh point two is go all in on lng you know in case you were nostalgic for the uh 2013 bc liberals uh following that is prioritize private sector innovation uh highlighting uh electrification of lng and carbon capture invest in climate resilient infrastructure cut that wild that that part is in Clean BC, I just want to point out. Yes, but they'll do it outside of Clean BC. Okay. 
and who knows, maybe the uh, the durable dates will be slightly more durable under this version. They'll be done by the free market instead of big government. Uh, they're planning on the big area where they are planning on cutting emissions, and it's the only part that actually says cut emissions in there is the cut wildfire emissions by overhauling forest management practices uh, by hitting fires quote fast or hard and fast upon initial identification. Uh, so basically going for a complete suppression model, which is not good. Like this is what a lot of places used to do from like, I don't even know, like 50s, 60s on through up till a few decades ago when a uh, bunch of people realized that, oh, turns out if you just do everything possible to suppress any fires, all you do is just increase the amount of burnable stuff over the long run. And then when it finally does have a fire that breaches that, it just gets so much worse and is in fact worse than uh, not having some just periodic natural burns on it. Uh, so this is really is one of those probably very short-sighted ones. I mean, you already have a fair bit of some of the other stuff in here is short-sighted. But on the, like, we know this is a bad idea because this is what we used to do and stopped doing it for good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, uh, they are going to end the unfair EV subsidy uh, so that people are not uh, subsidizing rich people's Teslas. I mean, That's notably province did start making the ev subsidy means tested recently so it is less available to the rich yeah like, like, although evs are still expensive so like i kind of get the critique but i mean have you seen what any new car costs these days yeah fair <laughs> unless you're like buying like the uh bottom of the market sedan uh like you're shelling out significant money for pretty much anything so once again they have a backgrounder attached to this this one's a little bit better than the last time i mocked them except under you mean they don't have like th three different documents of varying detail nested in each other well the backgrounder doesn't have much more in details uh there is a typo in that they missed the b and bc on one of the lines and it hasn't been updated since i noticed that like three days ago um but that's just me being petty uh, among the details that is in there that's not in the summary document which is only slightly shorter uh, is a quote to uh, innovation and realistic emissions targets for affordability. So they point out that the BC Business Council thinks the 2030 targets are unrealistic, which is not the group I would go to for climate analysis. Um, but they say they're going to recalibrate the near-term targets while still aiming for the net zero 2050 goal, which is an interesting claim given they are proposing to scrap every measure we have except climate resilient infrastructure in our plan and and wildfire fighting don't forget the wildfire yeah. fighting um, those pocket of emissions like overall their plan is the old bc liberal approach less the carbon tax where we are going to stop caring about bc's emissions as much as we are going to claim that we can use lng exports to offset global emissions by doing that stepping stone transition, even though we arguably need bigger steps than that, and try and calculate that. Uh, the one thing they do say they would do positively in this backgrounder is reinstate the independent power producers program that allows small scale clean energy projects 
to be developed in partnership with local First Nations. Um, but like, oh, and maybe use biofuels as a sustainable source of electricity from the forestry sector. But it's it's a joke of a plan. It's not a plan. It's a we're going to tear things up and maybe there'll be something in the future. Yeah, this uh, this really feels like the sort of thing you would have gotten longer than 10 years, like 15 to 20 years ago from a third party that didn't have the resources to really do much on a policy development thing. And on one hand, like the political winds are pretty clearly in the direction of right now voters are more concerned about uh, the cost they are paying for everything rather than um, more abstract concerns around climate. And maybe they're trying, well, I think they are trying to seize those uh, currents and ride them. This doesn't feel like a particularly great approach on it. Like there's not enough on the like direct savings for people to really uh, get the win there while it's, doing enough to loot to basically lock out any people who have climate as kind of not the thing they're voting on, but like a threshold question. And yeah, this is something where I think they've pretty clearly staked out their next election strategy, not as, or next election goal, not as beat the NDP and be government, but beat the conservatives for official opposition status and hold them at bay. Because this really feels like a case of we're going to try and put out a plan that's as close to what the BC conservatives are going to put out so that they can't outflank us on this. Yes, this is the save the furniture plan. So if you think this is too long, let's read the conservative policy that came out this week uh, because it's much shorter, uh, but says basically the same things faster. Um, well, so yeah, water. conservative peace, conservative party of BC's climate plan planning for BC to adapt and prosper. Uh, you know, the climate plan is real and good when it starts with quote, our changing climate is real and man is impacting our climate. Anthropogenic warming from CO2 is also real, <laughs> something he has notably denied in the past, John Rustad, and it is one of hundreds of potentially, and it is one of hundreds of potential factors when considering our climate. However, British Columbians are not NOT capital facing an existential threat from our changing climate. It isn't a crisis. In fact, our changing climate is not the most pressing issue facing us in BC or around the world. Now, we could get pedantic about what the word existential means in there. Um, I mean, the thing that jumped out at me on this is the use of man. Like, that just feels very dated, like... I I would be shocked if a boomer didn't write this press release. Oh, it's so much more better at the end when they say, now more than ever, British Columbians need leadership that is honest, transparent, and which shares their priorities. We also need leadership which believes in the power of building science and technology to adapt and solve problems as man has always done rather than a climate doom cult. I googled that phrase, as man has always done, and it's basically only used by religious writers, as far as I could tell. It's a weird one. Also, when I hear building science, I think of like a very narrow discipline of like engineering and architecture rather than what I think they are trying to go for of like harnessing the power of science and technology. This feels like wacky Bennett era of political writing. 
but in terms of the actual plan itself, um, it's three bullet points. So I may as well just read them. They're going to eliminate costly climate taxes and policies, and they name them all uh, and return the money to British Columbians. And then they will assure food and energy security by dramatically increasing food production and securing our future energy needs. And they will improve our water management. How? I don't know how, but they will. Are they going to like create more farmland or something? Well, if the climate warms BC up, I guess they're under the impression that that will open up additional farmland for production. The water management one also feels like out of place on this one. It's, it's like a stakeholder caught the ear of whoever's writing this. Like, yeah, we should make sure to talk about water management in there too. Like, if you think about the BC Conservative Caucus and base, it is a rural BC. And especially they're strong in northern BC. And so I can see the connection to, you know, ranching rural development and therefore food production and water management are going to be core issues for them. And so, you know, I have no no issues with those depending how you do it. But yeah, there's no there's no plan here either. But maybe this is a pre-release of a plan. If, as I reread it, this might be a suggestion that something more is coming. But I, I'm going to throw this. I don't think the conservatives for the next election actually need much of a climate plan. They're only really going to be fighting to pick off the uh, the rural seats that the BC United is holding right now. They're not going to be competitive at all. Um, probably even as like the third place party in any of the seats where there's a large chunk of voters for whom this is a you know, basic threshold question for them. They can just pick off the voters that are not happy with the current direction on policies on this one. And, you know, that gets them to their next goal. And then after the next election, if they're, you know, in a stronger spot, then they can refine their messaging a little more on this and use, you know, the next four-year cycle to uh, then play for the next increment on this. But we're still ways out from an election here, and I would be surprised if they do more on this in the next year or so. Except maybe try to ride the wave of the general anti-Torben sentiment that uh, seems to have got a uh, fresh lease on life thanks to the uh, liberal government's recent decisions. Indeed. Uh that gives the BC NDP, though, uh, much more runway for the next year to do whatever they want. Uh, and one of the things they've decided to do is expand the speculation and vacancy tax. Uh, this is now coming to an Okanagan, Parksville, or Kamloops Salmon Arm community near you, pretty much, as Vernon, Penticton, Lake Country, and some of the smaller Okanagan communities get it. Oh, Courtney Comox is also in here. Yeah, and Salmon Arm and Kamloops. So, 11 additional communities are being added, uh, citing the housing crisis that continues to ripple out from the major centers. And so I can see why each of these has been hit. Actually, Courtney Comox is the farthest from like a major center, but I guess it's its own center in some ways. Yeah, I mean, like Partsville, may, I could see like people having, you know, uh, second place up near Partsville area, you know, like going to Roth River or whatever. Yeah. On some of those, but it's also at this point a pretty small change compared to everything else we've seen on the housing front lately. Uh, basically, 
This means that everybody who owns an empty home in one of those areas needs to fill it next year. I think you need to have it occupied for half the year. Uh, I forget the exact rules, but you have a few months to find some tenants or sell it or move in, I guess. Jumping to federal news, we have some housing information as well as the 2023 fall economic statement has come out as we let off with at the top there. We mentioned uh, the economic indicators at the top of it were actually quite positive for the government. Uh, We're still looking at a $43 billion deficit. That's roughly in line with what the budget had. And like every budget document is want to do, shows that it will get better within the next five years. And they, as they decline that deficit down to $14 billion, uh, the document goes through all of the standard kind of indicators like Canada's in the top for GDP growth. And, you know, inflation has gone up, but it's coming down fairly well. One of the biggest jumps on the chart that was impressive to look at was the individual things that are contributing to cost of living, you know, housing is up, food and groceries are up, but like childcare prices are through the floor. I mean, they picked three of like the bastion of goods that go into it. Yeah. I think they just wanted to emphasize like childcare funding has worked to really help a lot of families. And if I'm the government, I would be reminding parents of that quite regularly, even though like they would notice it every month, but you start to forget. But nevertheless, there's more the government wants and needs to do for people. And so they have, you know, set out four major areas, housing, God, these stupid liberal titles, supporting a strong middle class. Um, uh, I don't it, even... It doesn't have those and those who want to join it in there. That uh... Yeah, we've given up on them. <laughs> uh, building an economy that works for all Canadians, which is actually mostly climate stuff. Uh, and an effective government, a fair tax system, and a stable financial sector, aka other things that didn't fit in the first three. On housing, a lot of it is just rehashing basically what Sean Fraser has been doing for the past few months, but and also the announcement of removing GST on new rental housing. But they did add a measure that they are going to include rental co-ops in the removal of GST. Not, not all co-ops, but rental co-ops, which I guess someone pointed out and so they were like all right we'll we'll add that but that's not the big housing move the big housing move here is 15 billion dollars for loans for apartment construction hoping to get 100,000 homes out of that and a billion dollars for the affordable housing fund to get 7,000 homes we did it okay like we need three and a half million and that's a little short of that despite yeah, $15 billion has been a pretty significant chunk of change. I guess better than nothing, but yeah, at this point, it's uh, not going to move the needle all that much. The other like big housing thing they're talking about is changing some of the tax rules around people who run short-term rentals so that they won't be able to deduct those expenses if your short-term rental is not in compliance with provincial and municipal laws, or you won't be able to deduct them if they're prohibited. So like Which it, would not be in compliance with the laws. Yeah. Um, this this will give the CRA some ability to help crack down on this because one of the challenges we know municipalities have is enforcement. And like BC is a bit larger than obviously all the cities that have been trying to do something, but they're still going to have challenges with like the black Airbnb market. And if there's someone who's good at t- cracking down on tax sheets, it's generally been the CRA. So 
this is you know a positive move. They're also including fifty million dollars for municipalities to enforce short-term rental restrictions if they have them. So there's some moves there. Um, the government talked up a few other things they've done, like opening federal land for housing in a few cities across Canada, Edmonton, Calgary, St. John's, notably. We had a big rundown of the housing accelerator fund announcements. Yeah, a lot of a review. lot of tune their own horn on this one. Uh, they're talking about trying to make sure that construction workers and labor uh, can move between provinces easily by removing some of the barriers that still exist in the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, that interior agreement which we talked about. Yeah, years ago at this point, and it's ridiculous we even needed to have one because, in theory, the uh, free trade agreement that governs Canada was the uh, Constitution. But it's a silly country sometimes. Uh, speaking of silly country, we have a Canadian mortgage charter now. Yes, uh, which is what you'd more kind of call guidelines than a new law. This is apparently not going to actually be put into legislation that's more kind of a set of expectations that the government is going to have when it kind of looks at the banks i guess i guess the goal here is to clarify some of the rules around uh, when mortgage terms come up or what to do with people who are at risk of defaulting or being unable to afford their mortgage and so the government is trying to clarify existing rules and put it all into one place for banks and for uh, mortgage holders to, I guess, have some more fairness. And like, that's all fine. Uh, it's things like making sure people are notified in advance of their mortgage coming up for renewal, that it's coming up for renewal, which like so reputable banks. Yeah, I think reputable banks do. I haven't had a mortgage come up for renewal yet, but. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I rent, so I haven't uh, had it with you. But like just the amount of stuff my bank sends me about like every random th- product I have with them, I would be shocked if, you know, the thing that is the biggest loan anyone will ever get in their life for the most part wouldn't have some version of that go out. Like there are some dodgier banks out there and people who have bad credit are probably stuck getting on them. So I get it. Um, there's also bits about ensuring they can waive interest uh, when relief measures are put in place. It's, there's like a little bit there to protect people who are at the like last straw. Um, but it's not revolutionary. It's more like you say guidelines that are sure. Yeah, like the I think like the most notable thing here is probably the uh, exempted insured mortgage holders from requalifying under the stress test when switching lenders. So like that'll potentially yeah you know, give people even not even some relief, but like just not like lock them out of being able to renew their mortgage. I think one of the challenges the government was up against with this fiscal update is with higher interest rates, debt servicing costs have increased. And so the government's ability to easily spend a lot more money has been restricted. And the crises in housing and climate and everything are still out there. And they still need to do, as you said, like an order or two magnitude larger in terms of efforts on this. And yet, they also don't want to come off as, you know, tax and spend liberals in well, a situation yeah. when they're already down twenty points in the polls. <laughs> yeah, like thanks to rising interest rates, the uh, the interest payment on the 
debt is, I think I saw it was $41 billion, I think it was, in there. So that is larger than any department in the government. Uh, I think some of the transfer pro like block transfers to the provinces are bigger than that. But like, this is now like one of the largest line items on the federal budget. And I mean, this is having a point where like debt to GDP is not crazy. Um, certainly not compared to some of the other uh, OECD countries out there. But like, you know, when you, that $40 billion, like that starts to actually crowd out other spending. And it means the uh, the period we all got used to and where I think a lot of us kind of formed our assumptions or um, rules of thumb about what governments should do fiscally uh, in the zero interest rate or near zero interest rate environment that uh, persisted from basically the uh, start of the global financial crisis up till the last uh, couple of years is like, that's no longer the case. It's just a very different fiscal situation. Governments are operating in when it comes to debt. And this government hasn't exactly changed its uh, approach to uh, finances very much, but like, it's going to be a constraint on the feds, the provinces, uh, and even any boring cities do. So like, it's, it's the case that like if you thought, oh, well, just borrow money for whatever we, we want, like it's not going to be that easy going forward anymore. There's there's gonna to start to be some trade-offs on that. Could always have a revenue option, but that's not in this, as far as I remember seeing. Uh I mean we'll all- be collecting slightly more taxes from Airbnb operators. There, there you go. Um in this second section. Uh, this, I guess this is more like the consumer protection section. I'll frame it. Um, this is the how do you make it a- affordable. Uh, they, it, the supporting the straw middle class section. Yeah, they're uh, announced. I, I couldn't even tell if there are new amendments to, or additional amendments to the Competition Act. Um, but they... I think this is the stuff they've like been talking about for a while. But it hasn't necessarily made it into implementation. Yeah, there's a lot of buzzwords in here. They're going to target allow the Competition Bureau to target predatory pricing, killer acquisitions, greenwashing, uh, and just other harmful conduct. Um, And they're going to allow more parties to bring cases to the competition tribunal. So all of that sounds fine. I don't like any of those things. So, (laughs) but like, you know, the the, the greenwashing one in particular seems like really hard to enforce. Like a lot of the times when I've seen that accusation thrown around, it's, you know, like people not liking what what something's going on and don't like that part of the branding around that has to do with some environmental or climate benefit that is ancillary to it. But like often there is actually some benefit and like people don't like the branding aspect of it more than anything else. And that's just like not something you can really legislate or regulate your way around. Yeah, we've done in the past some regulations around uh, specific claims that are being made, and maybe that's where they're going into the... Yeah, like <laughs> lying yeah. about stuff. But like, um, I'm like this probably wouldn't be an example that falls under, but just like think of like some of the greenwashing stuff. Like people accuse the, oh, you you know, you want to build more uh, 
housing in urban centers and you're talking about the climate benefit, you're just greenwashing, you know, your whatever plan or around that. It, you know, it's not necessarily a like competition thing, but you know, if someone, if a developer had, you know, pitched the building they want to develop beside a transit station as having environmental benefits for that reason, you know, the opposition to it will may throw around the term greenwashing. And like, that's just not something you can realistically regulate around in a case like that. Listen, I'm just going to look forward to bringing a case against the Liberal Party of Canada for greenwashing <laughs> their own policies. Uh, the government just... Mean, they, they have run, like probably the most ambitious uh, set of environmental policies in, the, in Canada's history, but like that's also maybe a low bar. Uh, they are planning to bring in some right to repair. This is uh, helping break some of the intellectual property barriers that prevent people from fixing everything from tractors to cell phones to I don't know, light bulbs. Uh, and it's become quite actually a significant issue. Can you actually repair a light bulb? I don't know. They just had to yeah. replace them. That was a bad example. Uh, they're also going to continue their crackdown on junk fees. This time they are targeting uh, airlines that charge parents to sit on us to guarantee a seat beside their kids on a flight. So sometimes there's an extra seat fee to just make sure parents and kids sit next to each other, which is bullshit. <laughs> Um, they are also going to empower the CRTC to investigate mobile roaming costs. Uh, and they are also going to look at non-sufficient fund fees from banks. Uh, so just more investigations on some of those. Uh, there's a lot of like, we will consider some of this stuff in this fiscal update, which is great. Oh, they're taking GST off psychotherapy and counseling. You know, which we've solved the mental health crisis by reducing it by 5%. I know a lot of people were like, man, I need therapy, but damn, I have to pay 5% GST on top of $200 an hour. Hey, aren't like a lot of medical stuff exempt from uh, GST? I like, I couldn't say for sure. Like, I'm not against this policy, but it's one of those things where you just like roll your eyes at it because it's so minimal. Uh, they're also bringing in a new 15-week shareable EI adoption benefit. So if you adopt a kid, you and your partner can split 15 weeks off to help welcome that child into your home. Uh, they estimate the cost of this at $41 million over six years, and then $12.6 million ongoing. Uh, and then they're also making changes to the federal labor code to guarantee that federally regulated workers can take that time off without losing their jobs. Um, and then, yeah, they mentioned a bunch of other things that they have ongoing, like the dental care program, but it's just a lot of patting themselves on the back. As governments at this stage like to do. On the climate and economy stuff, there's a few little things here. They are introducing a 30% clean tech tax credit for waste, biomass, electricity, and or heating systems. Uh, if you, But it's dependent on when construction started. If construction did not begin before March 28th, 2023, you only get a 15% credit. Well, that seems weird. Like, why would you do that? Uh, in a way that basically doesn't get you any incentive effects for it. And maybe it's trying to like keep the cost down, but like a retroactive tax credit that's higher than the ongoing one yeah, just well. seems like a weird way to structure it. Like if anything, no, sorry, I think I read it wrong. It'll be available from March 28th, 2023. Okay. Yeah. 
This credit is available at 30% for those who started construction after March 28th, 2023, and it'll be 15% for older ones. Okay, that makes more sense. Outside of that, uh, there's a little bit on hydrogen in here, carbon capture and storage, like really just reiterating the tax credits they've already put in place. Uh, and then we move into like tweaking pension funds. Uh, well, what are those a little more than just tweaking? So yeah. they want to work with pension funds to promote domestic investments, which you know basically do the thing we were criticizing the proposed Alberta pension fund for doing. The whole point of a, having a big pension fund is you diversify it as much as possible and you don't tie it to your own economic fortunes. Like the last thing that either Alberta or Canada wants is to have their pension fund take a big hit whenever there's an economic downturn and basically politicking around with what's the pension fund decides to invest in in a way that basically acts as like a slush fund for domestic industries is a terrible way to do it. And what the hell are they thinking with this? Like the, the CPP actually is a pretty good model and other countries have looked to it on how, how they run it. And yeah, you know, it's not perfect. I wasn't a huge fan of a few years ago when they uh, shifted to more like a active management rather than in-depth based approach to a lot of their investing decisions and whatnot. But like outside like a few nitpicky things like that, they're generally it's a pretty good model. And when you start mucking with it to like score domestic political points, you you start to chip away at what makes it actually a very secure pension. I think that the big fundamental issue that comes up so much is governments see this giant pot of money in pension funds and go, what can I do with that? And what it ultimately does is it undermines the fact that that is not the government's money. Those That's the workers' money. That is money that they have put aside and is part of their salary to retire off of. That is not money for governments to fuck around with. Like, a pension fund that is owned by a union could decide to promote domestic investment. It might not be the most prudent invest, you know, strategy, but it is their money to deal with. The federal government deciding or the provincial, you know, the province of Alberta deciding what to do with a pension is almost stealing workers' monies in a way that like taxes aren't, right? Because taxes you you know, you taxes go to the government coffers. That is government's money. Pensions are workers' monies <laughs> just <laughs> and should be protected and ideally invested as prudently as possible. Um, yeah, this seems like not a prudent way to go about it. They are also yeah. looking at removing the 30% rule, which neither of us knew what was. Effectively, there is a rule in place in Canada that federally regulated pensions can't own more than 30% of the voting shares of any company. The idea here being that pensions are generally a more passive type of system. And so a pension can't run a company or really do votes. And so let's not let pensions well, buy out a company and run it. It is. They shouldn't. Um but at the same time, that has also already been skirted around in a number of cases using different investment techniques. Um, and so the government, I even found a consultation from 2016 about whether they should do this and get rid of this rule. Uh, and now they're going to consult on it again. 
Uh, I don't have strong feelings. I understand the logic of why it's there, but uh, the 2016 paper I skimmed quickly pointed out that we're the only country in the OECD that has this rule. So like, it's like probably it's not an actually all that critical rule if every other country gets away with or every other major economy works just fine without it. Like it's one that isn't like entirely without rationale, but like also doesn't really seem to be like something that has a strong enough rationale that like it actually needs to be a legislated rule. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like not 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 everything that not every best practice needs to be a law. There's a few other like measures in here, but like around disclosure on pensions, um, they're potentially going to promote employee ownership trusts a little bit more by exempting the first ten million dollars in capital gains sales on a business if it's sold to an employee ownership trust. So this is basically a situation. This is a situation where a company's going under and rather than, I don't know, carve it up or sell it to a competitor, the workers of it say, hey, we want to buy it. Uh, there was a paper mill in Vancouver Island that did this. And I think, um, what's the news station on? The, there's a few of them. Yeah, there's been a couple news stations that this has happened to, including one in uh, Victoria or in the capital region um, that went this way. And... This is a way to potentially promote that, and it can be a good model to, you know, promote employee ownership, which I'm in favor of. So it's interesting, and you know, exempting capital gains creates an incentive to do that. So, and I don't, I guess it does cost government a little bit of money. Yeah, it does cost some money. <laughs> and they will also potentially make climate disclosures mandatory for private companies, and I don't even know what that includes. Yeah, I'm a little curious on how that's going to work too, because like a lot of the um securities regulation which is where the um you know investor disclosures come from are provincial in nature so maybe it's like a federally regulated thing which is also like one of the weird things about our system is that securities regulation is done at a, the provincial level it's obviously should be federal but actually getting that changed does not come easy indeed and there's been about like there's been some voluntary agreements, so like maybe this would fall under one of those voluntary agreements. Oh, and I don't know. <laughs> and finally, as we move out of the driest section, apologies, listeners, for the talk on pensions and climate disclosures. Hey, there's nothing dry about investing. <laughs> to the catch-all section on effective government, fair taxes, and stable financial sector. Oh, we're never out of the financial stuff. There is. It is the fiscal update. We, it would be shocking if we were. An announcement here that they are finding additional savings. They found an additional almost $350 million in cuts for 2025, 2026, uh, including $691 million ongoing. Uh, that's on top of the $15.4 billion in cost savings and cuts that they announced in budget 2023. So they're trying to show that they're still, you know, keeping expenses under control. Uh, they have also found another $480 million in savings by reducing unallocated and unrequired investments. Um, one thing really interesting in this last section is they plan to amend federal insolvency laws to exclude post-secondary education institutions. And I found this most interesting. 
uh, here in BC since Quest University up in Squamish was the only post-secondary I can think of in the last year to go bankrupt. Uh, so an interesting timing on that announcement. I don't know if they're related. And they are also going to increase the labor tax credit for Canadian journalist organizations. So, so they're going to shell out a bunch more money to help shore up the various journalism outfits that uh, they screwed over with their terribly thought out uh, revenue share. Was it C18 bill? Yeah, apparently that none of those companies are going to get money from Facebook or Google. <laughs> who don't want to comply with Which the law. everyone could have told them ahead of time. Uh, but no, they, they wanted to go ahead and now it's going to be put on the bats of everyone. Yeah, this means journalists will now be able to be paid up to 85000 instead of just 55000 or at least that amount will be eligible for a deduction. And they will get a tax credit of 35% instead of 25% for four years. So, damn, we should have gotten this status for Leg and Boot Media and magically found we the money to hire to, a journalist yeah we actually need to pay someone like a full-time salary i think to be eligible so uh the patreon is not quite there to be able to do that but if it were to be there we'd be able to offset quite a bit of that once we get the initial amount yeah and you have to like prove yourself legitimate first so you need to have i think you have to have like two staff members we have zero so uh, and finally, there is a pledge to strengthen anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing regimes in Canada, um, which is, again, not a section I'm super detailed on, but this includes a various criminal code changes, uh, beefing up uh, the Canadian Border Service Agency, uh, and just, I don't know, trying to crack down on money laundering and terrorism <laughs> this is good yeah the, you know some of these like some that, of these yeah. things like in here they talk about um search seizure and proceeds of crime so you can get into civil forfeiture stuff that could be problematic i don't think that's in the federal mandate here but um well, i think we can at least all yeah. that terrorism funding should be uh part of you know should fall squarely in the things we don't allow in the country and take a harsh view on. Yeah. Provided we can agree on a definition. So all in all, it's, it's an update. It was like, I was actually expecting more. Uh, there, a lot of the housing stuff was leaked a day or two before the actual fiscal update was released. It, it is like a mid-year update. It's not a budget, so it's expected a full budget's worth. Might be a bit much. I mean, the bunch of the conversations on some of the other political podcasts in the lead-up to this was, you know, are they going to be, do the, we're a bunch of very responsible fiscal managers, we're going to get that debt and deficit uh, under control and everything. Or were they going to go for the affordability stuff? It looks like they've mostly picked the affordability lane on this, which is probably the smart thing. You think so? I look at this and I don't see measures here to make life more affordable. <laughs> There's like some... 
<laughs> they tried to balance the two and did neither. I see fewer. Me- I see fewer measures to control the debt. That's <laughs> that. That's my point. It's like it does more for affordability than the debt. But uh, what I was going to get to in that sentence was uh, like nothing here is a big enough. You know, put something in the window that really grabs everyone's attention on it. Like it's a lot of small little things and. Yeah, I'm sure if you're flying somewhere, not having to shell the nets for like 30 bucks to make sure your seat selections are so with your kid might be nice. But like, that is not the uh, thing that people are all that worried about. And like they talked about, so we didn't talk on what they have in grocery, but they basically like run over what I would would have to be very generously called the highlights of their efforts over the fall to deal with high grocery prices um, on there. Like there, there just isn't enough in here or not even enough. There's not like the one thing that everybody can pick up and run with as a talking point on this. And it's the, so that would really grab a, oh, we're doing this to make life more affordable. Like, that's where it's missing here and where the missed opportunity is. But it does seem like they actually did choose a direction on it. They just didn't execute on a way that's actually going to be poli- uh, have a big political payoff. Yeah, the liberals are in such dire straits. They need like a series of successful Hail Marys. And I think they tried to play up the like Canada's in a good you know, economic situation, we can give you some, I don't know, small trinkets to make you feel better and be still on a good path. But like, like I said, it's pleasing no one because there's nothing big here to be excited about or to be like, oh man, the liberals are actually caring about me. And at the same time, you can also be like, they're still spending a lot of money and the country's in, like if you, the country's not in like fiscal crisis, but if you want to pretend it is there are scary numbers in here that without context you can make scary yeah, so the the debt payments have risen at their i think highest rate ever um over the past year as interest rates shot up to uh you know a couple times what they they were before like that's concerning it's not a you know five long fire and won't be for several years if things continue, you know, definitely time to course threat. This isn't the nineties. Um, but you know, there's a, a blinking light on the dash that, uh, people should be paying attention to on this. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't do anything to really arrest that set of concerns on there. And I mean, the, the most successful thing they've done so far has basically been pick a housing minister that, actually understands the job and goes out and does stuff um which one would think would be such a low bar that it would not be noteworthy but uh apparently it has been so now that sean fraser actually goes out and does notable announcements he actually they're actually putting a few points on the board there but it's not enough to actually make a difference and i think the problem with picking something big on that is like there isn't an obvious one mo Farmer care would be there's enough people with existing um 
pharmacare benefits of some kind or another uh, through their you know employer provided standard health that you know the benefit pool is not big enough that that speaks to everyone one enough they I mean we saw what they did with the carbon taxes a few weeks ago and that ended up just making everything worse you you would need something big on that and like there just hasn't been anything that's kind of sitting out there as an obvious we're going to do this short of sending everyone a check which they have not done and probably uh even that would just read a cynical where the liberals are in the polls right now they're in a tough spot yeah hopefully the ndp doesn't bring down the government over the pharmacopoeia care bill whenever that comes because they need the NDP's well I guess they need the NDP or the bloc's votes to get this fiscal update passed or else we're going to an election I don't think that'll happen but <laughs> is the fiscal update a confidence motion I know budgets are it's money I they could make it a confidence motion yeah it probably might be I assumed yeah. it was maybe it's not who knows and that has been Playtoast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>